I told someone once, I said, you know, every morning when I wake up, right, my single most important prayer, right, is I pray to not be convinced. Because there's something about being convinced. When you're convinced about something, you tend to have a very, very irrational adherence to what you think, you know, what you think is right or, or what you think the status quo is. That could be potentially unhealthy. You always want to live every moment or every time you feel like this is the right decision, you also want to leave a little bit of room for your mind to change. Welcome to Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast for dreamers, thinkers, and doers. We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, listen to diverse perspectives on African success, and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zezariaki Sal, your host. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is F.A. Edmond Olotu. He is a non-specific parallel entrepreneur who has had several careers in different industries, but has dedicated the last decade to technical solutions for the advancement of business and services in Africa, most importantly, Nigeria. And emerging markets. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with FA. And it comes in at a time where most businesses are having to rethink their place in the world and listening to his career in digital products and solutions, I'm hoping will give some inspiration to anyone out there who is trying to brainstorm their way out of this pandemic that we're living through. Hi, F.A. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. It is an honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Zaza. Thank you. It seems odd, actually, interviewing someone I've known all my life. Um, But I will try to do the interview justice. And hopefully you feel like I I am able to do it justice without without throwing in any childhood stories. (laughs) We'll try, we'll try our best not to embarrass ourselves on this podcast. I think that would be important, actually. Um, I think one of the first things I said was, Ed, what do I call you? Do I call you Efe or do I call you Edmund? <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> so Efe, a.k.a. Edmund Olotu, founder of Tech Advance. And you say parallel entrepreneur, parallel and serial and multi, I think will be good words for that. I'll let you tell the audience more about, I guess, Tech Advance, and then we can delve into your journey so far, the work that you've been doing for years, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, So Tech Advance really is a payment infrastructure and digital financial services um, company. So we build technology Um, that enables transactions, essentially. So on the payment side, on the digital financial services side, like digital banking, digital lending, digital savings. Um, And we also play as well in the utility space. So mostly electricity utility um, through a subsidiary company called GPay. So we process electricity payments for um, customers and electricity companies in Nigeria. Nice. So basically everything digital. Um, I'm hoping actually this episode would be great for anyone who's thinking about 
I guess, digital or tech businesses. And also we'll talk about, I guess, your work in tech advancement or solutions for Africa um, a little later in the show. But what you didn't say, or what I missed actually in your intro, is you are also AKA Pajama CEO. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, so Pajama CEO really was kind of like my, um, my rebellion against the system. So when I started out in tech uh, many, many years ago, um, 2009, really, in Nigeria, tech in Nigeria. Yeah. It was still very, very stuffy, you know, so you had to wear your, you know, you had to wear your tie. Um, if you weren't wearing a suit, you know, that respect just wasn't there, you know. So, like, it wasn't about the content of what you were talking about. So it wasn't Silicon Valley, same T-shirts No, it wasn't. Jeans. It wasn't. It wasn't at all. It wasn't at all. It was, you, you had to look like a banker, right, to get any type of audience and stuff like that. So the moment I'd say we crossed the threshold um, from being judged by our appearance to being judged by what we're talking about, then I just fell back into the most comfortable version of myself, and that's just me in the most comfortable clothes ever, um, pajamas. <laughs> um, so you were um, ahead of the curve there. Yeah, COVID hit, and everyone's a pajama CEO now. Exactly, exactly. So um, I remember sometimes I had like you know the MD of one of the largest um, insurance companies, and he came for a meeting in my office, and I walked in, and you know he was already sat there, so I walked in in my. I mean, they weren't exactly pajamas. They were like um, Adirette trousers and a T-shirt and a pair of um, Havaina flip-flops. And so I sat down and I was like, you know, you know, good morning. My name is Edmund. And you could just look at his face and he was just still. Was he trying to order a tea or coffee with you at yeah, that point? Exactly. He was, just, he was looking. He was like, he wasn't sure. So he was like, um, like so I was like, yeah, it's me. Like, can we start type thing? And he's like, ah, oh, you're the CEO. I'm like, yes, I am. He's like, oh <laughs> So after a while, he was like, you know what? His son was about to start university in Canada. And he was like, you know, like after after the meeting, he was like, you know, I really enjoyed this meeting. You know, my son wants to wants to do um, tech. He's, he keeps talking about tech, software design, coding and all of this. And I've always been on the fence. But after just sitting with you and hearing you and just seeing you, how casual you are. And it's everything, possible. Like I'm, I'm re- yeah, it's not like useless for playing video games. <laughs> exactly. You know, so he was like, so I'm like, OK, if I'm able to change just one mind, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a good thing, you know. So I hope he went back and told his son to go ahead and be a software developer and everything else and dress how you want. Yeah. You don't have to wear a suit to be able to make sense and, and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah, that's I feel like to to 2009, um, I started like Malay then. And I think what people perhaps don't appreciate today is that we didn't have... Entrepreneurship wasn't cool, man. It was it wasn't. What, it, wasn't. It, it was what people who were failing at life did, or that was the perception at the time. Um, and it was a hobby that you were trying to validate by not doing anything. Exactly. Like I tell people, well, entrepreneurship for me started when um, I had applied for so many jobs, you know, then in, in, mm. in uni. So then it was uni in England and... Um, yeah. 
at the year of graduation, you get this. We cur- will get to your CV now. Uh, yeah, Mechanical we'll Engineer, <laughs> University of Nottingham Business School, Harvard. It wasn't all glory, you know. So in your, in your final year, you get this book, and it had literally all the companies in, 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 a, in the UK, mm-hmm. you know, in the book, and you start applying for jobs. So you go from investment yep. banking, mechanical engineering. You're looking for graduate programs. Graduate programs, yeah. So I applied for, I must have applied for all of them. And in one day, I just went to my mailbox and I had like this huge chunk of mail. So I was like, ah, definitely something has come through for for me. And I opened all of them and I think there were 14 in total and I got 14 rejection letters. So I was just like, okay, this is the pace. Then we better start thinking about something else to do with our life, right? And that was it really. But now you have people who can get the best jobs possible, right? Um, and I'm speaking generally, not just Nigeria, yeah. around the world. And they still opt for um, entrepreneurship. And that wasn't the case back then, right? For no, Especially for no. young, young entrepreneurs. Maybe for well, mid- for me too, right? Yeah. It was the same story. I think it was no one would hire me, so you hire yourself. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, um, yeah, thank God it kind of like worked out. Kinda. So, so uh, <laughs> did you just say thank God? Yeah, I did <laughs> because it could have gone, it could have gone completely sour. But um, here we are. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. So I think, you know, I kind of jumped into CV reading. Very good African child. You read all your books, got all the certificates. But somehow within that, you've always sort of entrepreneurship was always something you invested your time into. I feel like I remember a summer. I feel like you you spent some time with us that summer and you had an idea that you were still at. I think you were in Manchester at the time and you and your friends were doing something. And I think that was the first time I, I remember you, I guess, speaking on entrepreneurship. Yeah. In that way. I probably at that point point never even knew how to spell it. You know, I was probably still just, <laughs> you know, but That's it. yeah, I, yeah. It's always kind of like been at the back of my mind. I mean, you know, you mm-hmm. know the background we came from. Parents worked nine to yeah. five, you know, and all that type yep. of stuff. Um, then when I went to um, secondary school in Nigeria, then I got to see the other side. So I I, I started interacting with kids whose parents yeah. had businesses and owned businesses and everything else. And I yeah. see their parents and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh, there's another way, you know. So in my little bubble, you know, my parents worked for Shell 9 to 5 and all of that. I didn't know there was actually okay. another for way. For context, I, I suppose we're both oil brats. Yes, um, yes. And we're, we're, by and large, you know, grew up in a very privileged environment where we were able to have less of a myopic view on Africa and opportunities and to be able to experience Africa very differently with the stability um, and infrastructure that a large part of the continent doesn't even have. Yes. 
Um, and I think as a result of that, though, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say Napa never took light. No, no. I remember moving out of camp and that my first experience of that. And I think for the first few months, we would, like my parents were trialing it out. So we would go to the house, like outside of camp, and then we would like go and shower and like we would spend half the day and then go and sleep in the new house. Like it was, it was very crazy. But yeah, you know, infrastructure issues weren't things we experienced for a very long time till till almost like I say well into te- teenage teenage life right like, and then um in my case I was you know sent to out to a boarding school outside of the state that we were in and then you met because we were all we all grew up with each other so you didn't even know the world was different like and you went to school but you like your community was your community and I guess the only way you knew if you if you how different you were was when you crossed people's front doors and how different they had like decorated their homes or furnished their homes, and that was even depending on where they went on cross posting. Exactly. <laughs> I digress, um, but context being that the start was one of clear stability um, and a system that worked, a system that meant you know if you studied hard, got great grades you had the opportunity of getting a a stable, safe job that gave you a great lifestyle. So then digressing from, from that pathway was kind of like strange to a lot of people, right? Um, because even my own parents were like, why would you want to like just go life on your own, you know? Um, why wouldn't you just want to come back and get a job and, you know, work in a bank or work in, you know, telecoms company or work in an oil company or something um so so it was kind of like really really foreign to a lot of people back then in say 2000 and you know between 2005 and 2009 when i was really just cutting my teeth in entrepreneurship then finally moving back to nigeria and you know and it's like well just just get a proper job and you know you'll be a manager in no time you know and stuff like that so it was really really strange for people it wasn't the cool thing that it is right now, you know? No, far from it. And I think even more strange for you because you had you had already been a part of the U.S. ecosystem of, you know, raising venture capital money. You had already seen, I want to say, the future of where Africa perhaps now is in terms of raising funds. And then you had the one business that was a huge win, Straight out of Harvard, really, Navira. Yes, I think all those things kind of which is again textbook, right? That was textbook. Yeah, went to Harvard, had a startup, sold it to Johnson and Johnson for six hundred million dollars. So it it sounds textbook, (laughs) but I'm trying to the Melinda Gates Foundation uh, Award. Yeah, no, it sounds textbook now in hindsight, but I remember all the sleepless nights, and I remember you know, all the stress and um, I don't want to go into like a lot of the negativity of it, but I can remember those days when we stand in front of VCs and they look at me and my co-founder and I was, you know, Nigerian immigrant, he was Pakistani immigrant and they'll look at us like, you know, boys in their twenties, like, what do you guys know about HIV? What the hell are you talking about? Who's the professor who developed this? 
and we'll be like, it's us. They're like, no, there must be a professor. We're like, no, they're, they're like, you guys are at Harvard. There must be a lab. There must be a professor. This must be licensed from the Harvard lab. And you're like, no, it's us. You know, up until the point where we had to actually go get ourselves a professor. We're like, you know what, let's go get a professor that at least, you know, like we could just put his name on the slides so that they'll believe, you know, we're, we're responsible for this technology. So it wasn't quite textbook, so to speak, because um, in that era, and even now, most of the people who discover, you know, novel drugs for diseases are long-term PhD scientists or professors and, and stuff like that. They doctors, weren't, yeah, yeah, doctors, they weren't Specialists, young, yeah. yes, they weren't young, um, they weren't young students, you know, at, in their twenties at Harvard, right? So, um, it wasn't quite textbook, so to speak, but nonetheless, um, or young immigrant people either. Either, yes. Um, it made me a and little bit... of color, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I suffered through all of that and I was like, you know what? It's going to be so much easier the second time around. I'm going to come to Nigeria where everyone's my color, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what I've done would resonate and it would be so much easier the second time around. And I... I, I moved, Yeah, I moved back to Nigeria <laughs> with, a lot of na- with a lot of naivety. And... Um, yeah, like you said, hot slab for for many years. But yeah, still, you know, I won't trade. I won't trade. You know, the experience for anything else. It'd definitely be more exciting than having a job. So, so I guess a running theme for you is digital products. So post Novira, you know, antiviral drug discovery in the U.S. Great accolades. You have a great acquisition under your belt. You move to Nigeria. And then there's high TV, high television. Yes. And then it's digital satellite TV, the first platform in Africa to have pay, basically pay-per-view TV decoder systems. How do you go from where you were and then digital products? Because it would have been a no-brainer to continue down the health solutions, right? It would have been. But I moved to Nigeria, and I think for me, really, I've, I've never really been um, sector-specific. So I've always been attracted to solving, um, like, big, big problems, right? So when I moved to Nigeria, I was ready, I was ready to set up my, um, you know, my payments company and, and digital, you know, um, payment infrastructure and stuff. Um, then I met with um, Tony Subaya through a friend of mine, and um, he was he was the founder of High TV, right? And I mean, I sat with him for probably all of thirty minutes, and I keyed into his vision. So he was another guy who was trying to solve a very very big problem himself, and it was exciting. It was great, and I thought, you know what? I wouldn't mind posing my own. Uh, my own aspirations for a couple of years, you know, I mean, I ended up spending about 15 to 18 months there. Um, so I wouldn't mind posing my own aspiration to help to, to work with him on his journey to solving another big problem. And um, to a large extent, um, he, you know, he broke ground and he, he began solving that problem and almost solved that problem until the other, you know, um, macroeconomic factors and microaggressions microaggressions of, of Nigeria kind of like fed into that business and, and killed it. Um, but nonetheless, he showed what was possible within a short space of time, what was possible for young entrepreneurs because he was in his early thirties at the time as well. So it was, it was definitely a good time for me. It was a good learning curve for me as well. Um, and it bought me a couple of months of acclimatizing myself to Nigeria and understanding what exactly, 
you know, this country was about before I kind of like set out um, on my own to start Tech Advance, which would then focus really on on payments and payments infrastructure. But the, I guess the argument can be, but you're already a chairman. Why go work for someone else? Right? Ah, um, <laughs> to be fair, I wasn't a chairman at that time, right? So I had just, uh, the investors had come into my into my business. I'm still not a chairman now, but anyway. The investors, ah, chairman. <laughs> the investors had hey, <laughs> come into my business in the States, you know, and... Um, yeah. You know, yes, we won the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grants and, you know, I moved back to Nigeria. But, you know, we hadn't had an exit, right? So without an exit, you're not really, you're not out of the woodwork, right? So I know it's, it's you know, nowadays you just hear, oh, people raise 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, and people think that they have access to that cash, that cash is in their back pocket. No, it's not. That's the money you're going to spend building the business. You're going to earn a salary like every other person. You know, and you're going to build that. You probably earn less than people in your company at that point in time. Yep. Until Preach. you, yep, until you, until you exit. And when you exit is when you finally receive some kind of like bulk remuneration for your years of hard work and risk taking. Um, so that's kind of like how it was. So I moved back to Nigeria. Uh, I mean, I did have some capital that I could have spent immediately starting my own company. But I decided to, you know what, cut my teeth with somebody else, you know, learn, understand the lay of the land. Um, I moved to Lagos. I'd never, ever lived in Lagos. I mean, the only um, three, I, I mean, I'd come to Lagos three times prior. Two times was to visit my uncle who lived in Lagos. And the third time was to fly out of Lagos. Connecting flights. Uh, connecting flights, <laughs> you know. So I didn't know nothing about Lagos. Uh, so I was like, mm. you just come in, you're just going to start your own business with your money. You probably lose that money in one month, you know. So better to kind of like understand. And that's what I did. You know, I was there and I learned. I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, um, especially the softer things, right? You see a lot of the mi- microaggression um you know, for young entrepreneurs and everything, you know, um, and, um, and it was good to kind of like witness that, um, you know, essentially on somebody else's dime. So let me not say it was good, but it was, um, it was important, you know, to witness that and see all those things before I set out by myself. And then the Super Geeks? Yes. So Super Geeks was another, you know, foray. Um, it was, it was no a, brainer, really. It seemed after like sales it. support for consumer electronics. There's no Apple Care. There's no aftercare. It always seems like a no brainer until you start. <laughs> so to us, it was a no brainer. We're like, why do people have to travel all the way to Sakatinobu to to do this? And they can't. Why it should happen at the at the doorstep? And blah blah blah. blah. And, you know, on paper, it all sounded good and great. And we started out all right. Then, you know, somewhere along the line, we realized that were two things. One, the vast majority of Nigerians don't actually have as many, you know, aftercare products that we think they do, right? What they really have most of the time is just mobile phones, right? And a mobile phone is literally an extension of people's, like, fingers, in Nigeria is how they is how they work is how they play is how they socialize is how they do everything so if you're trying to repair someone's phone and you can't repair it in 30 minutes forget about it right and we just didn't have the structures to repair it in 30 minutes so in Sakatinubu for example there's one you know big guy that buys all the phone screens so the new iPhone comes out he goes to China or wherever and he buys like billions of naira worth of iPhone screens brings it into brings it into Sakatinobu in record time, 
distributes it among the people who repair phones such that if you go to Sakati and able to repair your phone, they will, repeat, they will change your screen right there and there in front of you. For us, that was more distributed. You know, if you come to us to repair your phone, we'd have to take your phone off you. Then we'd have to go find the screen that match your phone, right? Because we don't have the critical mass like those guys had, right? And then we'd have to travel back from Sakatimbu to our location, then repair your phone. And that took time. And people were like, no, if it's going to take me that much time, then I'm just going to go to Sakatinubu. So that was the first thing. So we then realized that if we had to replicate the Sakatinubu model, then distribution, logistics, it just became, you know, quite a huge um, expense. And at the point where we're about to dive into it properly, then the dollar versus the Naira grew from, I think it was 100 and that was the period it grew from 170 or 220 or so to almost 500, right? And immediately just killed our business model. Um, it, 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 it killed our business model. It eroded our cash runway overnight and everything. And what was a, a damn good idea on paper, um, we were forced to kind of like close shop. So, um, yes, so, so that's Nigeria and, and that's the perils of entrepreneurship. Some are good. And some you think will be good, just end up being different. (laughs) Yeah. And then you decide you're going to become a miner. Yes, I did. Just somebody better knock me upside my head the next time I, (laughs) I, (laughs) the next time I decide to to do something um, that adventurous. So yeah, it was at the tail end of Ebola. And I was, I realized a lot of the mining companies and miners had left uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia. And, um, I thought it was an opportunity. And indeed it was, to be fair. But when I got into it, I just realized that line of work just didn't suit my DNA, right? So um, went into went into Sierra Leone and Liberia. We gained some mining mining acreage, you know, alongside our partners. And, and um, we invested the money in buying all the equipment, shipped everything in there. And I spent close to six months in the bush of... Uh, of Conor, which is like six, seven hours away from Freetown in, um, in, in Sierra Leone, you know, deep inside the, the bush in the mining villages and everything. And after a while, I was like, listen, am I really going to do this? Like, is this what I really want to do? Am I going to spend six months at a time doing this? And then I just started thinking about scalability. You know, sometimes it just hits you and you're like, okay, so how many mining companies are as big as tech companies, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they invest all this money and everything. But truly, if you're not if you're not the beers or um, um, one or two of, of others, you can't compete with with the tech companies. At the end of the day, from a valuation perspective, a risk perspective, everything. Plus the fact that I, you know, okay, I've done six months in the bush of Kono. Am I going to spend another six months in this bush? Like. You know, what, you know, it was just, it was uncomfortable. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't what I, I thought it would be. It was good. It was actually, it was good because I needed out of Nigeria and just to clear my head. And there was no better way to do it than just literally living the most basic life possible in the bushes somewhere, mining diamonds and mining gold. And, you know, and, and it was, to be fair, it was very exciting, right? So beyond all of this, um, there's something to be said when you when you find a diamond, like it's literally like a like a rush. And you know, we found many of those. So there were many days of of good times and 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 screaming and shouting when the diamond comes out and stuff like that. 
but yeah, generally I was like, yeah, this is not what I want to do for the, for the rest of my life. So I came back to, uh, to tech, but it helped me refine the type of businesses I knew I wanted to spend my life, you know, building. And I just realized that those type of businesses weren't one of them. And then you finally do GPA, right? You finally start to, to really invest your time and resources into, I guess, what now has become your calling, right? So yeah. tech solutions or tech advancements for Africa. That's right. Yeah. So, yes, I, um, I came back at this point. So my, my, I had my brain reset, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so I started putting more of my effort into uh, making sure that, you know, the business is successful, um, gaining more clients, and then really investing in building out, uh, you know, digital solutions. So we started in utilities and, you know, from what we're doing in utilities, started building out our, our payment infrastructure, getting the licenses we needed, building out, uh, you know, digital banking platforms, payment platforms. And um, that's kind of like what we're doing now. And really the mission of Tech Advance now is really exporting those technologies to other emerging markets and finding partners in emerging markets and delivering um, those technologies to them. So, yeah, since then it's been, uh, it's been, a, it's been good times, you know. Do you feel like, I guess, especially now with COVID, right? Before we went on, we were talking about like what's happening with my business and in and, and business in general. And I guess there's there's been a lot of talk in the last five years around the role of technology in the future of Africa and how that plays a role in not just consumer access to um, things, but as a solution to some of the long-standing issues we have within our ecosystem, um, whether that's uh, infrastructure, whether that's a level of independence for the consumer. You know, I know you speak about this a lot and it's something you're passionate about um, and have dedicated, you know, by and large the last decade to. For you, though, what does that mean for you? So I I think COVID you know, did something for, I speak to Nigeria, I wouldn't want to say the entire African continent, but, but I'm sure what happened in Nigeria duplicated across other countries in, in Africa and across, across other emerging markets, right? And on multiple levels as well. So I think what COVID has done really during this period is to change consumer behaviors and consumer habits. So there are a lot of people who wouldn't have ever shopped online who shop online. There are a lot of people who felt like they, the only way they could transact was with cash who are now transacting with digital services. Um, so we brought a lot of people across that um, chasm from um, living kind of like analog lifestyles into being more interested in living kind of like um, digital lifestyles. And, and that's across the board from how they consume content to, to visual and written content to... Um, to how to do transactions, make payments, how to shop for goods and services and everything else, right? So it has helped to kind of like catalyze that, um, so to speak. Um, but on the other side as well, it has also shown a lot of gaps in, you know, the core of, um, can I say commercialization and industrialization, right? So up until this period, I was never really fully aware of what I consumed that was foreign, right? 
until this period. Then I started realizing that, listen, I could literally consume more Nigerian stuff and I won't die. <laughs> you understand what I mean? Like I could, you know, and, and I think it's the same. If people need to look, you know, so kind of like take a step back and say, what does this also mean for not just digitization, but also industrialization? What can I be producing that I know a lot of Nigerians are going to buy, you know, beyond, you know, digital services and digital products uh, or leveraging the new um, digital, you know, the new play towards digital infrastructure and digital transactions to be able to sell or distribute, you know, um, industrialized goods, you know. So, so yeah, this does this. I I hope people are thinking because this period, you know, clearly revealed so many gaps, and gaps always, you know, would remain opportunity opportunities to the right people. Yeah, I think um, every business, every sector, every we're all learning as as this is evolving. But I guess for for people in the tech space, there's there's a you know, they always say the cool kids um, are the ones who predict the future, right? Um, it almost feels like you guys had a snapshot of what potentially the future might look like um, as somehow potentially or somehow in a way ahead of the curve. And then you've gone from entrepreneur to investor, um, which we all read about in the textbooks as, hey, you know, th- this is the way to go uh, to, to grow your your wealth would be, you know, having having enough as an entrepreneur to then to then start investing. Um, but I guess I want to speak to, and you've had enough experience fundraising, and also fundraising out of Africa. I feel like there's an there's enough conversations that happen behind closed doors about like a, a despondent feeling about you know there not being enough opportunities for young entrepreneurs out of Africa, but you were able to do it? Um, yes. (laughs) So I have to tread carefully here because I don't want it to sound like, um, it was, it's also rosy and it's because it's, it's clearly not, um, back then as well, it was entirely different. So even sometimes when I see some of the deals that entrepreneurs are able to get today, I'm like, wow, that would, that deal wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Right. So on one hand, it is easier um, for for minority black um, entrepreneurs to get good deals. But at the same time, um, I would say as a proportion of the total amount of deals out there, I think we're still lagging behind somewhat. Um, So a lot still needs to be done um, to to bring that throughput, you know, to to our own communities and everything so that like, we're really, really capturing, um, we're really, really capturing a lot of that money that's out there for investment. But in terms of like the unit quality of those deals, I'd say they've drastically improved um, from, from back, from back then. But in terms of the volume and the access and everything else, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the same. Um, obviously, right now we see what's going on with you know the, you know the the current movement in the United States and the United States is kind of like you know in terms of where capital resides and capital for ideas resides, the United States is kind of like where it's at. So um, and we're and you know all over Twitter and social media you're seeing investment firms saying, listen, we want to do more. We weren't quite sure how to before, but right now we want to make active efforts to do more. So if you're a black founder 
your minority founder, you know, make yourself known to us and stuff like that. So I'm hoping that's just not kind of like cosmetics, right? And that and that continues um, beyond this um, um, beyond this movement that's currently happening. And I also hope it it extends to African entrepreneurs as well, right? So not just African American or Black British or or or, or Black French, but also extends you know continent wide over here. If not, I think it's also time that wealthy Nigerians start looking at these opportunities. And even if they don't fully understand them, they should at least mimic them, right? Um, Because there are a lot of wealthy Nigerians who have the funds, or let me just say wealthy Africans anyway, who have the funds to make these type of investments, at least the seed and early series A type of these investments, who don't do it predominantly because they don't understand it, right? And sometimes if you wait... Would it be that or is that it's just too risky? I think most of the time they don't understand it. I also think it's too risky. I also think that our markets our markets are not sophisticated enough as well because, yes, if you, if you invest this money, how are you exiting, right? One thing you have to, we have to know about, like, foreign investors is that at every step of the value chain, they know who they're exiting to. So the angel, the angel guy that comes in and puts a hundred grand in your company is the one who is going to speak to the series A guy. He knows his series A guy and he's telling that guy, Hey, listen, I've done the early due diligence for you. I put a hundred K in this company, 18 months. We're going to come back to you. It'll be your time. It'll be your time to put $2 million into the company. And he knows he's going to make his, his hundred K is going to become 200 K and he's investing in the next company immediately after that. And he knows he can call on that guy. That Series A guy who is putting $2 million into it is also speaking to somebody else and he say, hey, Series B guy, guess what? I put $2 million in this company. The guy at Angel the, the guy at Angel told me that it was going to do this and it really did do this. So I'm expecting that my $2 million is going to turn into $10 million. And when it does, I'm going to come speak to you. And the Series B guy is there waiting. And when that happens, it's a handshake. The deal is done, right? And the Series B guy then goes to Google Ventures or goes to Apple Ventures or Facebook or whatever and says, hey, I'm bringing you these guys. It's going to be a great addition to what your current portfolio. It's a good feature for your platform or whatever, whatever, whatever. I'll bring it to you once once they've made some significant traction and you're going to buy it from me for $1 billion, right? Or whatever. So that's how it works out in those markets because those markets are sophisticated. In Nigeria, we just don't have that yet, right? We don't have that yet. So on one hand, um, I'm quite happy that some of the Nigerian companies have been able to But get... not impossible, right? It's not impossible. It's just it will take time to build, right? This, the Silicon Valley we know of today and the tech investment that we know of today, remember, like the building blocks for all of that started with Microsoft and Apple back in the late 70s and early 80s. So we're talking about a close to 30-something year, yeah, a few decades. So in Nigeria, we're really only 10 decades. We're only 10 years in maximum, right? And 10 years in is is nothing in the grand scheme of things, right? So, So what I'm also hoping is some of the investors and entrepreneurs who have had the opportunity of experiencing this are going to be the ones to then come come back out and start to put these structures in place quicker and faster for other people, right? So um, the likes of Flutterwave and, and Della, and I mean, E is already doing it, um, um, Aboyaji. So the likes of those guys, 
you know, they've made some exits and they're coming back and they're putting those structures in place, you know, um, in within, within Nigeria. So they would be the guys who would start to create the same structures where they can just literally handshake deals to each other until, until they exit. Yeah. I guess this versus Rich Uncle Network, right? That, that as well. So that's kind of like supposed to be the starting point, right? But in Nigeria, there's so much of an informal social security that people with a bit of means are subscribed to that is so difficult, kind of like looking beyond their noses into seed investments and angel investments, right? So even if you're, you're a high earner or something and you have a bit of savings, you're constantly doling out money to extended family and other people around you because generally the country is just poor, right? That by the time you're done, um, someone speaking to you about investment almost sounds like they're begging you, right? It, you don't see it from the lens of this is an opportunity for me to mutually you know, benefit from. You see it from the lens of this is somebody asking me for a larger amount of money than normal. <laughs> you know, This is someone begging me for a larger amount of money than I'm used to giving the people who beg me for money, right? You don't see it from the lens of this is someone coming to me with an investment opportunity and an opportunity for me to make myself richer. So those those dynamics have to change. And, you know, it, it would happen, but it will take a little bit of time. I guess it's the difference in the conversation, like you're saying, where this is an opportunity for both parties to gain. I think for a long time, the thought of fundraising especially I know that I faced this early on in, in my business where, and, and sometimes I guess the psychology is something I still grapple with. And when people go, oh, so how are you funded? And you almost want to kind of go, oh, but I'm all self-funded because I don't know, it's like a badge of honor because yeah. uh, you feel like you haven't gone begging. Yeah. Um, and it, in so many ways, whether you're, you're, you're self-funded or your business has grown organically or whether you've raised money, as an entrepreneur, there's a level of begging that happens that you can't escape. Yeah, there, there, there is. And to be fair, there shouldn't be, right? Because I can't beg you for money and give you returns at the same time. <laughs> like, I mean, it doesn't sit well, right? If I'm begging you for the money, then you better be not expecting any returns. I can't beg you for money, then now deliver to you, you know, splendid returns, right? I, at that point, you should be begging me to collect your returns if I had to beg you for the money. Um, but, I mean, that is what it is because the dynamics of power lies in the hands of those with the cash. Um, so, yes, uh, some begging has to happen, and um, it's just what it is. Um, you know. Um, but there are also times where I know further down the chain, by the time you get to Series B, Series C, and the company is looking amazing. I, I know a certain situation where investors are the ones begging to get in on the transaction because at that point, they know it's a clear exit to say Visa or MasterCard or somewhere else. So they're now begging to get in because they know they're, they're going to make some returns. So yeah, at some point it switches, but early on the dynamics uh, of power lies in the hands of the guys with money. And yeah, so there is some begging that just has to happen. You shared something a while ago, which had to do with, you know, I really don't like the word pivoting, but very much a mindset around entrepreneurship, which is you're allowed to change your mind with new and relevant information. You don't have to be married to the original idea in the way that it's a noose around your neck. Definitely. Um, 
I told someone once, I said, you know, every morning when I wake up, right, my single most important prayer, right, is I pray to not be convinced. Because there's something about being convinced. When you're convinced about something, you tend to have a very, very irrational adherence to what you think, you know, what you think is right or, or what you think the status quo is. That could be potentially unhealthy. You always want to live every moment or every time you feel like this is the right decision, you also want to leave a little bit of room for your mind to change. And a lot of people start out and, and not start out like that. They're really, really convinced about something to the point where when the data shows them that it's something else, they can't you know, extricate themselves from their own line of thought and their own line of actions. And that is very, very, it's very dangerous, right? And that's why nowadays, if you see the, the importance of data analytics and data science and that type of stuff, you know, it's being, it's coming to the fore because data allows you, you know, data leads to information, information leads to new knowledge, right? So the data fundamentally allows you begin to change your mind. And so it's very, very important that you're able to pivot. It's very, very important that you're able to change your mind. And it's one of the key things that certain investors, you know, look for as well. They're looking at an entrepreneur and they're saying, yes, we want you to be sure that this is the business you want to do. But at the same time, we want to also be confident that the moment the data tells you otherwise, that you would pivot in a bid to kind of like save the company or in the bid to preserve your resources and stuff like that. So yeah, being able to kind of like look at data, look at new information and change your mind is extremely, extremely important. Not just in tech or in business or in, in life in general. It's, it's very important. I think there's something about constantly improving, constantly investing the time and, and also not being afraid to try other things, right? And not being afraid to try things, which leads me into your influencing with Glenn Fiddich. Mm. Um, I thought that was interesting. And then the deep sea diving, classic car restoring, and your passion for art. Uh, so those are kind of like the other, <laughs> the other side of me that kind of like stops me from losing my mind. Um, so yes, uh, um, I was approached through um, a very good friend of mine, um, Bidemi. Um, so she approached me and she was like, hey, guess what? Um, Glenn Fiddick is doing this campaign. I think you're kind of like interesting. And I would just like to put your profile forward, you know, no promises and let's see what they say. And um, somehow, I mean, she must have called me like two, three weeks later. And I was like, oh, you're calling me to tell me that I'm not a celebrity, right? So they're obviously not going to care. And she's like, no, actually quite the opposite that, you know, they're, they're interested in, in, in doing this with you. So it was, it was extreme, you know, it was so much fun. And, you know, we kind of like had like a blank canvas. So like, okay, what do you want to do? What, what, what stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily do, you'd be afraid of doing and everything else. And um, so I had to pick two. So two things I'm like morbidly afraid of, you know, up in the sky and I'm morbidly afraid of so far below um, water level. Right. So I'm like, which one do I pick? Like, so now which one do I conquer? Do I conquer below um, water surface level or do I conquer, you know, 
up in the sky. And I was like, yeah, I think I'll go for um, <laughs> I'll go for below below um, water. So I decided rather than maybe jump out of a plane or bungee jumping or something, I'd rather do you know diving. And we kind of like had a blank canvas to kind of like pick where in the world we wanted to do it. And obviously with restrictions with Nigerian passports and everything, Costa Rica um, was one of the few places um, I could go because I had an American visa and an American visa allows you um, in Costa Rica. And, you know, it was basically it was the most amazing experience of my life. I keep telling people, I'm like, no matter what beauty you've seen, you know, um, on earth, you know, um, it's nothing compared to what you see below, below sea level, right? Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful down there. And I believe everybody in the world should experience it at least at least once. It gives you a newfound respect for just creation and evolution and biology and, and everything, you know. And also what the human body can do and what the human body can adapt to, you know. I went through many trials in my training to be able to do it, you know. Being able to take off your mask underwater and not choke to death and, you know, just the fear of literally choking and drowning, you know, when you take off your mask, but having to do it like, you know, um, 40 feet below sea level. It was, it was, it was a crazy mental, physical test, but it was for a good cause. And, um, and uh, hopefully I can say I contributed to Glenfiddich, you know, gaining some traction within the Nigerian market. So <laughs> it's, it, it worked out, it worked out well. And um, yes, I, I do like art. It's one of those things where if you can't be an artist, um, then you kind of like just consume art. Um, so yeah, I, I know for a fact I can't, I can't even paint the sun, you know, <laughs> or, 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 or anything. But um, I have a deep appreciation for people who can just, you know, put their imagination on paper or put their imagination on, you know, pour out their imagination on a sculpture or something like that. So where I can consume it, um, I do. Um, and hopefully it's also another way of kind of like exposing um, another, you know, faucet of Nigerian creativity um, to the world, you know. So it's easy for like musicians and, and other creatives to get, you know, um, conventional distribution out there. So everybody in the world knows about Nigerian music and Nigerian this. But we're, we're you know, to the collectors, the Nigerian art collectors in Nigeria were doing our bits to also expose what Nigerian art is um, to the world. And I think that's also pretty important mission. Very true. I feel like I've written down Patreon and Patriot um, in and amongst it. I think one of the common threads of, I guess, every guest on the show is the fact that the work that each guest does is purposeful and definitely work that is contributing to our culture and making a difference um, and, and finding your way of doing that, right? I think with you across, whether you call it your interests and your work, I think you're passionate about advocating and creating voices for, for people who sometimes seldomly have them. There's a part of the show where I get the guest to share their full names um, in the hopes of touching up on, I guess, an experience or remembering how badly your name has been called to you in the past. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so to be fair, right, I've kind of like been lucky. My name hasn't really been butchered to the extent that 
In fact, my name gets butchered more in Nigeria than anywhere else, too. Uh, you know, especially, you know, living in Lagos. So my full name is Ibodefe Edmund Olotu. So when I was growing up, I wasn't really called Ibodefe. I was called Efe, right? And Efe means wealth. Um, so when I was doing my baptism as a, as a Catholic, I chose a Christian name that meant wealth. So Edmund also means wealth. So it was easy for me to kind of like adapt to the two, you know, um, F.A. F.A. was just easy. So even when I was in England, you know, when I tell people my name is F.A., they're like F.A. Club, F.A. Cup. I'm like, yeah, just like that. <laughs> you know? So I was like, just like that. So it was easy for them because they're just like F.A. Cup. So F.A. was easy for them too. So so at least it didn't get as butchered as maybe if I had led with I would F.A. Um, but nobody even yeah. called me that. Even my parents never called me Ibo Defe, right? So I didn't even remember you being called Ibo Defe. I, I didn't yeah. even know that was the full, that I didn't even the, know that was the full, yeah, full version. The, that was the full version, you know. But now, uh, it's so funny. Like now, I've made kind of like made a pact to myself that, you know, anywhere I have to say my name, I say it. Like if you butcher it, I'll correct you until you get it right. You know, it's... Our names are important, you know. It's not like, you know, early days, and I'm glad a lot of us have kind of like grown out of that. So it's something that I know we're not imparting, you know, to our own children and stuff like that is, you know, our names are what our names are. You're going to, you will pronounce it. Like, that's what it is. You're just going to have to learn how to pronounce it, you know. So there's a lot of pride in in um, in um in the names that we're given, especially coming from where we're from in in Nigeria, from Benin, those states, those names have deep meaning, and and um, it's it's important that people recognize those those meanings. And yes, you know, obviously, when we're, I'm sure, when a lot of us were younger, we're like, okay, let's make it easy for them. Call me Edmund instead. If if FA becomes difficult, and then people call you Edmund, then your nickname just kind of like takes over as well. But you know, now that we we kind of like. We have a, a different, I wouldn't, I say different because I'm not going to say we didn't have a sense of pride in ourselves back then we did. But now that we have a different one, you know, one that kind of like stems from a little bit of an I don't give a F attitude, you would pronounce my name. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. um, you, I don't care if it takes you 10 minutes, you will pronounce it, you know, so that's what it is. Thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing as much as you did. Where do people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, um, pyjama underscore CEO, Instagram, pyjama underscore CEO, Instagram again, Edmund Von Diddles, Instagram again, ancient underscore broom. Um, that's where we, we do some, you know, um, vintage car restoration. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I didn't so. touch on that. Yeah, because you... Okay, so this is super cool. Growing up, I'll let you do the talking about that. I'll, I'll try and... As <laughs> <laughs> um, about to talk about your own interests, like it's my own. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've always... Um, I, 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 you know, one... I kind of like picked up a bug, um, like just watching, you know, car restorations and, and, and stuff like that uh, on TV. But besides that as well, I just kind of like always thought about, you know, in Nigeria, what happens to these cars, you know? Um, every time, you know, new is not always better on one hand. And two, if we destroy everything old, then there's really no historical context to how anything came about, right? Um, so if 
people can't look back and say, you know, what cars are they driving in the in the sixties, in the in the you know seventies, in the eighties, in the nineties, in the whatever, then people just redefine your own history for you, right? They will tell you that the cars they started driving in Nigeria came in in the nineties, and you have no way of saying no. Actually, that's a lie. There were cars in the fifties, you know. So I thought about that, and I thought, you know, any opportunity I get to preserve these cars, it's something that I wanted to do. So. And and luckily for me, people call me and say, hey, I'm in Egbeda, you know, there's a car here that I think you should see. And I go and I see it and I talk to the owner and I'm like, listen, this car is just going to sit here and get rusty and degrade into the ground or whatever. Give it to me. And they do, you know, and I've been able to collect a couple of, you know, vintage cars and, you know, in my spare time working with, you know, some mechanics that share the same vision were able to kind of like gradually bring them bring them back to life and, and and it's there for like people to see and people to witness and be like oh wow cool so back then in the day this car these cars were in nigeria you know so it's a little hobby that we do on the side you know yeah I, and i think it's a great one um i think um in the same way the podcast for me is about documenting snapshots in time i think it's a great one because i think there's 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 a level of pride that comes from knowing that you know your people have good taste (laughs) definitely you know definitely and um and just being and like you know these little things we do now it's it's you're a custodian of history and there's pride in that as well you know so even with your podcast you're you know you're a custodian of the culture of the history you know of the moments even just speaking to you i'm remembering things that like I thought I'd t- completely forgotten about, you know, so, um, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I've enjoyed uh, sitting with you on the podcast and chatting about your journey and um, hopefully someone out there who's thinking of tech investments, Africa, listens to this episode and takes away some of the gems that you were able to share with us and can get in touch with you and we look forward to seeing what you do next thank you thank you very much Zaza. thank you appreciate it thank you for listening to this episode of third culture africans the lifestyle podcast we would love to hear from you so please find us on facebook or instagram at third culture africans and leave us a comment a review goes a long way in getting our show notice so please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time